If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer or tablet. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many others. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listen- listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, it's Mini Super Tuesday, March 10th, 4.36 p.m. Pacific Time. And I haven't done a podcast in over a week. Um, since, uh, Super Tuesday, and, um, I've been trying to calm down, um, because I've been so upset about the blatant collusion, corruption, you know, I I don't know anymore what the right words are to describe it that's happening I guess I would call it collusion between uh, the DNC Democratic Party leaders and the media. Um, And so, for example, taking uh, sleepy Joe Biden, senile sleepy Joe Biden, who can't even really form a coherent sentence, let alone a paragraph, um who, you know, came in fourth or fifth place in in the first couple of states, first few states. Um, and then, you know, Jim Clyburn, another Democratic Party Clinton crook, uh, jumping in, and then, you know, Obama evidently jumping in um, and pushing Buttigieg and Klobuchar to end their campaigns so that basically the the non not Bernie vote would no longer be split among you know three to five people and it would you know to get it to all consolidate into Joe Biden um you know effectively leaving Bernie with in some states only you know maybe 30 percent of the vote it looks like um so I'm not super confident in what the results are going to be tonight. I mean, I suspect that Bernie may win a couple of states. So he may win up to half of the states, of the six states, um, with, as far as delegate count goes, um, you know, Michigan and Washington State being the most important Um Washington, I'm a little bit nervous about just because it flipped from being a caucus state to a primary state. And I know that in 2016, even though it was a caucus state, um, because of a weird Washington law fluke, um, the Democratic Party held both a caucus and a primary, um, with the caucus being used to assign presidential nomination delegates and the pres the presidential preference in the primary um 
was not used to calculate delegates and, and essentially meant nothing. Um, but Bernie beat Hillary <clears throat> by a huge amount. I mean, I think he got almost 80% of the caucus vote. And then I can't recall in the non-counting primary, uh, Hillary beat him um, in the primary. Mainly just because Bernie people knew that the primary didn't count and so didn't even vote in the primary. Um, so I think that's why that was. But in any case, um, the media narrative, false narrative, that Joe Biden is all of a sudden um, Superman um, while we watch him, well, when we even can watch him because he's now being kept relatively hidden. Um, his campaign events are tiny with, you know, under 50 people. Um, sometimes they're invitation only, no media. Um, he's being kept to very short, you know, under 15 minute speaking engagements. Um, you know, just today, I think in Detroit, he told off an auto worker and cussed him out and told him that he was full of shit and that he was going to slap him in the face and had his hand up in his face and was being, I mean, his, Biden's behavior is unstable, unpredictable. Um, he shows all the symptoms of someone who is experiencing some kind of neurological issues, um, you know, not being a doctor, I don't know, you know, exactly what the diagnosis might be, but, you know, the, the symptoms that we see, right, slurred speech, I mean, one night he appeared, I think it was on a debate, this was in the, in the beginning of the campaign, in the, of the primaries, and, you know, his eye was bloodshot, and one of his eye, you know, his eyeball was filled up with blood and then, you know, slurred speech. Um, he can't remember things. He can't remember Obama's name. He can't remember very simple, uh, you know, statements from the, dec the Declaration of Independence. He can't remember the leader of China's name, even though he supposedly met with him you know, multiple times during the eight years that he worked with Obama. He gets flustered. Um, he has um, anger outbursts um, that are not normal for his, for his, you know, behavior, maybe what we've seen or, you know, known from him um, over the past 20 years. He, he seems almost like violent at times um, for no reason, um, and it seems like later in the day, he, he, he's exhibiting, I think, what's called sundowning, which is, um, you know, just very strange behaviors, um, toward the end of the day, so I don't know what his deal is, but he, he is not operating with a full deck, I mean, the elevator does not go to the top floor, you know, any of those metaphors, it's, he's not all there. And I don't, I don't really understand how, I mean, 
you know, I don't think that Joe Biden, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack his character, his personal character. I mean, I'm sure that at a personal level, like if you were his friend or a family member or something like that, I'm sure he's probably a nice man. But certainly his policies and his political beliefs, both current and historical, are beyond horrific. You know, the 1994 crime bill, which he was the architect of, you know, his votes on uh, the Defense of Marriage Act and on Don't Ask, Don't Tell and on um, reproductive rights for, for women and the Hyde Amendment, um, Iraq War. I mean, he's just this... Uh, you know, in, in today's age, I mean, he comes across as maybe like a 1980s Republican. Um, he, you know, he, not very much different from maybe like a Ronald Reagan or something. I mean, he's just, he's out of touch with where modern society is in the United States. And I, I don't, you know, he, he appeared on... Um, MSNBC evidently last night and, and told Lawrence O'Donnell, um, you know, during a live interview that he would veto Medicare for all if he were president and, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren or whoever, and Nancy Pelosi managed to get it through Congress to, to be signed, that he would veto it. And, you know, meanwhile here, he is accepting all of these giant donations from billionaires and big pharma and health insurance companies. Um, and then at the same time, he's saying that he would veto a universal health care bill. It, it's, it's so blatant. The, 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 the corruption, the, the corporate corruption and, um, is so blatant with him. And then, you know, I have to say also just the nepotism, which I know is rampant in D.C., and it's in both parties, and it, it's, it's horrific, right? So, the, you know, the Republican Party has been weaponizing this Burisma and Hunter Biden business in, um, uh, you know, with, with Biden's son, and, you know... Was there anything done that was illegal? I, you know, I don't know. Unethical? For sure. I, you know, nepotism is unfortunately not illegal in most cases. Um, but it's certainly unethical. And he just doesn't seem to give a fuck. You know, the, these old school Democrats, much like Republicans, they just don't give a fuck. You know, like that, that to them is just how the world operates that to them. That's why they became involved in politics to begin with was for the grift. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, you know, give my kids a job, um, you know, um, give me some money and I'll vote this way on this bill or, you know, it's just horrible. So, I'm not optimistic about um, the outcome of the six states voting tonight. There is 
mounting evidence that we may have cheating going on in the vote counts or you know vote vote manipulations because the international standard for determining at first glance whether an election is um, fair, legal, etc., is exit polling and the election results not being more than four percent difference in 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 the counts. Um, I've looked at some spreadsheets um, over the past few days where the vote counts in various states like South Carolina, Maine, Massachusetts. Um, in California are not, you know, the vote counts do are, are way out of whack with what the exit polls say. Um, so he's getting way more votes than what the exit polls say that he should. Um, so that leaves me suspicious. Um, and then we also have in the states where Bernie has won, um, so, um, California for sure, um, and I think the other ones are, uh, California, Colorado, and it's the other one, Utah, I can't, I can't be certain, but there's one other state, um, that voted in, in the Super Tuesday states that Bernie won where the states haven't even published the vote count yet. I mean, we're beyond a week beyond the election, right? And and the votes, the, the, the state Democratic parties or the Secretary of State in those states has not yet reported the total vote count or the delegate allocation. And so... It's almost like it's intentionally being used to manipulate a media narrative where, for example, right now, I think Biden is has a delegate lead of somewhere between 60 and 75 delegates. Um, well, if all of the delegates from California and um, Colorado and the one other state, I can't remember if it's Utah or what other state that I can't remember. But if if Bernie were allocated all of the delegates that he earned in the states that already voted, I believe that he would either be ahead of Biden slightly in delegate count or even. And so it's almost like those states are intentionally holding back and delaying the results to avoid giving Bernie any kind of um, earned media um, narrative that he is neck and neck with Biden or beating him. And, and, and it's just, you know, first of all, the sheer fact that the United States has this crazy presidential primary um, or, you know, how our, our, our every four years, the, the, the primary elections, presidential primaries are, you know, front-loaded, back-loaded, mid-loaded, 
um, you know, the order in which the states vote, um, you know, is it a primary, is it a caucus, um, you know, of course, in Iowa, for example, we had this recent, the fiasco, um, where, you know, the Iowa Democratic Party still has not gotten the vote count right from the Iowa caucus. And they essentially gave up. They just said, well, fuck it. We can, we, we don't know. So this is just the results. We're not even going to, we're not even going to, as a matter of fact, I think today, and I think it's been, what, a month or more since the Iowa caucus, the Associated Press, which, you know, historically, for whatever reason, is kind of the looked upon as the, the arbiter, you know, in the media of calling elections, um, still has refused to call um, that election um, and, and kind of certify the results. So it's, it's, all of this is just beyond ridiculous. Um, so why do we have states? So first of all, no other country in the world, no other democracy in the world, large or small, that I can think of has elections, whether primary or general or both, that are not synchronized to all happen on the same day at the same time. Um, the U.S. is the only country that I can think of, democracy, that spreads primary elections scattered across, you know, several months where, you know, a um, presidential primary campaign or, well, not just for president, but for anything, right, for Congress, for the House, for Senate, for, you know, where campaign races are lasting a year two years, um, you know, like, why don't we just do like every other country where every, you know, kind of like we do with the general election, right? Everybody votes on the same day. We don't spread the general election out over multiple months and let people vote the general election, you know, over a period of six months. Why do we do that with the primaries? It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and, and when people try to explain it to me, they're like, well, you know, we have to do it that way because the U.S. is so large geographically and, you know, there's no way that we could have presidential candidates, um, you know, campaign in the whole country all at once. What the fuck are you talking about? It's the 21st century. We have the Internet. We have, you know... Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, TV, um, you know, air travel. I mean, you can, you can, you know, I mean, as, as we've seen Bernie do, I think, you know, both in 2016 and in this cycle, you know, I, I've seen days where he's been in like three or four different states all in one day. So, you know, certainly if we had a national primary day and if, you know, You'd have to leave, I don't know, let's say <coughs> 90 days, I think is reasonable, where during that 90-day period, you know, the, the presidential candidates would have to barnstorm the country, you know, either physically or virtually, right? Um, 
And, you know, so this old-fashioned 18th century retail politics, you know, where you're going to Iowa and you're eating corn dogs with people or, you know, whatever. It's like, fuck that bullshit. Are we still living in the 1700s? I don't know. I think I think some people are. I think we need to join the 21st century and actually do political campaigns like other countries do, like in Europe, like where... Um, you know, campaigns last for two to three months. They're publicly funded. Um, you know, billionaires are not, you know, there are no political ads on TV or radio. Um, you know, they're limited in print. And, you know, everybody gets the same budget to run their election campaign. And, and, and you're, you're judged by the voters on what your policies are, not on how much money you have, who your granddaddy was, who your cousin is, are you related to the Rockefellers, are you a Vanderbilt, you know, are you black, are you white, are you Asian, are you, you know, I mean, it's just crazy. And then the other thing that I that has really been infuriating to, to me is that you know, and it seems to be get, becoming more, um, exaggerated as the years go on. But, you know, I find it hard to believe that in the year 2020, if you flip on the TV for election coverage, that we are actually seeing people, we, we are dividing and analyzing statistics voter statistics based on race and ethnicity. Um, you know, and all this focus is put on pandering to, you know, whatever community it is. Um, and, and of course, I mean, I'm, I, I, I have nothing against any community. I, I don't, I've never had any, um, explicit, racist bone in my body. I mean, I love everybody from every background. But I, I don't understand why, you know, why we need to analyze, you know, or pander to, you know, or, or pander to, you know, Afri the African-American community and then the, the Latino community and the Asian community and the LGBTQ community and the Native American community. It's like, why can't we, just like in other countries, voters are voters and understand that everybody has, you know, so for example, uh, let me pick something out of the hat that I know a little bit about. But so for example, like in Germany, right? Okay. When Germany's holding an election, if, if the pundits were to go on TV or radio or in print and like Der Spiegel or, you know, anything, Deutsche Welle or anything else, if they, if they were to even suggest analyzing and breaking down voter statistics and demographics by race, <coughs> oh my God you the the i think they'd lock you up i you know you you'd certainly be laughed at scorned um and maybe even prosecuted 
for something. I mean, it's not appropriate. You know, it would be inappropriate for um, media in Germany to to start analyzing um, election outcomes by, you know, okay, this person is from a Turkish immigrant family. This person is from an Asian immigrant family. The, the, you know, this group of votes, you know, these people, Syrian, um, you know, the children of Syrian refugees voted this way. Um, to, to make, you know, and I think that part of that, of course, um, comes out of the um, absolute guilt that um, still is pervasive in Germany about the Holocaust and about Nazism. And so, of course, they're very sensitive to not, um, uh, you know, picking on people or, or using racial demographics to, to talk about stuff. Um, why? So why here in the United States when, I mean, of course, you know, we don't have the Holocaust, but we, I mean, we have the Trail of Tears, you know, with Native Americans. We have ho horrific slavery and, and, and Jim Crow, um, you know, that went on for hundreds, you know, maybe 400 years. Um, and it's still, the racism here is still horrible. So why we're trying to say, you know, even those of us who are, uh, you know, on the progressive side, who absolutely want to eradicate um, every kind of discrimination, every kind of racism, um, especially institutionalized racism, how can we claim that we are going to solve institutionalized racism by doing what I think may be racist pandering or, um, you know, uh, vote shaming. Um, you know, so for example, on MSNBC, right, when, the, you know, Steve Kornacki is, is, you know, when he's showing the board, right, and, and they're showing all these, like, exit polls, and it's like, you know, your age, demographic, and da da da, da. And then, you know, these pie charts, and it's like, you know, this percentage of the voters were um, black or African American. And this percentage of the voters are white. And this percentage of the voters are Latino. And then African Americans feel this way about this policy, and they like this candidate. And then Asian Americans like this candidate, and Latinos and Latinas like this candidate, and they feel this way about this. <sighs> okay, <clears throat> that may very well organically be the case, but I don't think that we need to call that out. I think there's a certain, at a certain point, by constantly driving home differences in opinion and trying to nail those into racial or ethnic categories, I think is institutionally racist. I'm absolutely offended by um, racial analyses of anything. Um, you know, whether that be elections, campaigns, um, it just it just seems horrific to me.
and it, and it seems to be in addition to being maybe racist um it also seems to be very anti-privacy like you know and it also seems to be trying to shoot you know shoehorn people into categories you know like oh well you know, it, it would be like saying, hypothetically, right? Like, oh, so you're African-American, so automatically you feel this way about this issue. I mean, that's not true. I, you know, I mean, I'm sure that maybe some things organically do happen across cultural or um, racial or ethnic lines, but I think that it probably more likely that things are generational gap generation gap oriented like age group oriented i mean certainly i think that in you know a lot of the um exit polling that i see that's divided by age for example we see a huge difference you know so for example the majority of voters in any racial category um, which I wish they wouldn't even do, but it, you know, so I think it's like the under 40, you know, voters who are under age 45 go overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders. And then voters who are over 45 overwhelmingly are going for Biden. And then it, it becomes even more extreme when, when you go to 65 and over for Biden, it's like, you know, 80% of, you know, those voters are for Biden. And then when you go, I think it's like ages 17 to 29, um, that's like, you know, 70 or 80% for Bernie Sanders, right? So to me, I mean, when I, you know, they put up all these pie charts with the racial divisions, it's like, wait a second. Um, I think they're trying to correlate some something to race that's not race-based. You know, like in other words, like, it's not, and, and I've even seen African-Americans, you know, progressive African-Americans who, who maybe aren't even pro-Bernie, right? Who, who have in, maybe endorsed Biden themselves, you know, come on TV and they talk and they go, look, it's not that African-Americans dislike or hate Bernie Sanders. It's, you know, and they're like, it's an age division. It's not a race thing. And sometimes it's regional, Right. So, you know, they're trying to shoehorn, like, all black people automatically feel this way. You know, oh, if you're a black person over the, you know, it's like, if you're a black person over the age of 45, like, oh, there's no way in hell you'll like Bernie Sanders. Well, that's, that's I don't think it's race-based. I mean, in other words, it's generational, um, younger people, and then it's also regional, so, you know, so African-Americans, I think, who live outside of the Deep South, the, you know, where it's conservative, right, like Bernie Sanders more than those who live in the Deep South, you know, it's, and I don't think that's a racial thing. I think that's a cultural thing. So does that mean, you know, so... And, and, and so the other thing is that I think is interesting and I think it's glaring, you know, and, and maybe as a socialist, duh, right? 
But when you look at all these wonderful demographics and the pie charts and, you know, Steve Kornacki or whoever going crazy, you know, the one thing that they never talk about and they, they well, they, they do kind of talk, they, they code it, right? The, the furthest that they're willing to go is education level. They're never willing to talk about socioeconomic class, right? So, you know, the lower you are on the socioeconomic class in America, the more pro-Bernie you are. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the further you go down, the, high, the more you like Bernie. <clears throat> and um, in contrast... The higher you go up on the socioeconomic scale or income, the less you like Bernie and the more you like conservative uh, politics where you're not going to be taxed, you know, or, you know, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. The whole system in the United States, I think, is just so fucked up. Um, and yeah, so I guess another term that we can just apply to ourselves, right, is the dirtbag left. So, you know, I've been listening to Chapo Trap House podcasts and I, and I really like those guys and gals. Um, and so, you know, uh, they're younger than me. So I'm generation X. Um, I think they are millennials um but they get it you know and and there are those those of us in generation x who get it too right that fuck you know what this whole system right like we, the united states is trapped in the 18th century we're living in the 21st century but our politics and so many other things healthcare, education is absolutely trapped in the 1700s. We're dealing with a constitution that, you know, was written in the 1700s. Um, and it, okay, there have been, you know, several amendments, right? But the amendments have been few and far between. You know, and so if you look at other democracies right and and so maybe i think outside of anglo-saxon democracies so um former uh british colonies right but if, if you look other than those right because then you get trapped in you know magna carta and all this other stuff but i mean if you look at other democracies across, you know, across Europe, um, uh, Central and South America, Asia, um, you know, it, um, you know, the, the, these, these countries have modernized their constitutions and in some cases have completely rewritten them. I mean, I remember a few years ago that Iceland, um, complete, I believe completely rewrote its constitution and it was so cool. They like crowdsourced it. I mean, like, like people on the internet 
you know, well, I think it was anyone, but in particular, you know, Icelandic citizens could contribute and edit and make suggestions to the new constitution. Hello? We're in the 21st century, right? So I don't really understand um, why, I think it's part of the reason why, you know, when we talk about democratic socialism or socialism, you know, in the United States and what, and what some of the um, obstacles are to, to democratic socialist or socialist principles, um, economic principles, that it, it's really, it's why it's so fucking frustrating, right? Because we're, we're you know, we're, we're stuck in the 1700s. The mentality is still politically in the 1700s. Um, and it, it's, it really needs to change. And I, you know, and I think that one of the things that, Ber that Bernie and his campaign have hit on, particularly in this cycle, I don't think it was talked about as much um, during his first run in, for the presidency in, in 2016, but, you know, transforming... Um, the United States, and so when he when he's talking about transforming it, it's like a cultural shift. Like there needs to be a cultural shift um, to modernize, you know, in order for for the country to modernize and get out of the fucking eighteenth century that we're stuck in. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know. I'm, I know I'm just rambling, but there are so many things that have to change here. And, you know, in, in some conversations that I've had with people online and in real life, um, you know, some of the conclusions that I come to uh, for, you know, maybe for various reasons in my personal background um, is, you know, like today I've been so frustrated with this election and the media rigging and the, you know, fucking MSNBC and CNN, the Clinton News Network, and, you know, ev everything's being thrown at Bernie, everything in the kitchen sink, everything that the DNC and the D Democratic Party elite can come up with, they're throwing at Bernie. The kitchen sink, the dishwasher, you know, whatever, right? And so it's like, really? You're attacking this guy because he wants everybody to have health care. He wants universal education and universal health care. And he wants to uh, do things to fight climate change and help save the planet. Like, like that's bad. You know, they're attacking him. Like, his policy ideas are, you know, like unicorns and rainbows. But then it's like you'd think, right, that he was proposing some kind of nefarious, you know, like, put everybody in a gulag or something, the way they attack him. It's like, no, these are pretty standard uh, humanist policies that are in place, like, in most major democracies all across the world. Hello? Hello? You know, universal education. Um... And universal health care are not radical ideas. The radical idea is not having it. The radical idea 
is that a person can be paying $12,000 a year or more in insurance premiums plus five, six, ten, twelve thousand $12,000 deductibles and plus co-pays and donut holes and, you know, depending on which insurance system you're in, private, public, hybrid, you know, there's thousands of insurance plans. It just, none of it makes any sense. But the people at the top, the, the 1% or maybe even the one, better yet, the 1% of the 1%, they are just, it is like heyday for them. Like because of all this fucked up shit, because of all the racism and the, and the 18th century fucked up bullshit mentalities and, you know, um, and I would say even the, the, the racism and then, you know, if you even go beyond that, the misogyny and the homophobia and the xenophobia and the, um, classism and just every, it's just horrific, but they are, but they don't want it to change. They know it's here. They don't want it to change because to them it's a profit mechanism. It is sheer greed. And so I think today I was just struck by seeing the clip of that interview of senile Biden talking to Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC last night and saying that he actually would have the cojones to veto Medicare for all. Because supposedly he's worried about how to pay for it. Well, but he won't veto the military budget. He won't veto any of the other bullshit that we, you know, the the kajillions of dollars that we send to Israel every year or to, you know, the kajillions that we spend on, you know, giving money to Saudi Arabia or to any of these other motherfuckers, dictatorship motherfuckers, you know. Meanwhile, bridges are falling apart, people don't have health care, people are sleeping on the streets, people are working three, four jobs to try and pay their rent, you know, the rent keeps going up 20% per year, but meanwhile, wages have not gone up in... 40 years so you know it's like nobody can afford anything anymore and you know when I talk to friends of mine who live in different countries like so for example um, in European countries they absolutely cannot understand you know when they read about or when I explain to them about how much what the cost of living is like in the United States, like how much bullshit we are having to pay, like, um, you know, for any European person to think of someone paying, you know, 12,000, you know, $1,000 a month in insurance premiums and then more in co-pays and, and deductibles and <clears throat> all this other bullshit. It's like they can't even wrap their head around it. Um, you know, or if I talk to a European person about, you know, if you want to go, I don't know, 
I'll pick one out of a hat. Um, you know, if you want to go, uh, you know, if you have a, a daughter or a niece or a sister or, you know, someone who wants to go to uh, Mills uh, College for Women near Berkeley, um, you know, $70,000 a year, I guess. I don't know what the exact numbers are. Pardon me, Mills, if I've I'm exaggerating getting getting the numbers wrong, but it's a lot. It, it's it's over fifty thousand a year. I know. Um, you know, to a European person, the sheer thought of spending fifty thousand dollars a year on school is like beyond ridiculous. Like they can't even believe that anybody, they can't even believe that such a thing exists. Um, you know, I know, like, you know, for a while in Germany. Several years ago, they changed the law, at least in certain states in Germany, and, you know, I think they were going to charge tuition of, like, um, maybe, like, the equivalent of, like, 500 euros or $500 per year to go to university, and, you know, people were just flipping out, right? Like, if they do something like that in France, like, there's riots in the streets, right? And, and college students are out, like, lighting cars on fire, and, you know, I mean, <clears throat> so, you know, $50,000 a year to go to college, it's like, that's, that's more than even, that's more, you know, the average American, I think the majority of Americans make under $40,000 a year wages. So the only people that can afford to go to these schools are super rich people. Everything is just geared toward the rich and the super rich. And if you're not, so, and, and the middle is being hollowed out. So, like, in the United States, if you're not rich or super rich, um, and if you're, I don't know, some remnant of the middle class, you're just being gouged. You know, and then the people on the low end, you know, so lower middle class and then the working poor are, you know, so while they're eligible for some assistance, you know, like Medicaid or maybe um, food assistance like EBT, food stamps, um, it's not enough. You know, I mean, I've known friends who are on disability and, you know, with super low incomes and then... Um, you know, they're, they're getting, um, in one case, I knew a friend who, you know, obviously I won't name for confidentiality reasons, um, in a state in the Midwest, live, and so this friend was living on less than $900 a month in disability income, SSI or SSDI, and then was only getting, I think it was $5 a month in food stamps. $5. And meanwhile, that person's rent was, I think, $600. So that means that that, per, you know, that person had $300 to pay for utilities, groceries, um, medications. Um, oh, and the person was diabetic, and, uh, but type 2, non-insulin dependent, but still. So, you know, it's just so fucked. Like, it's so fucked up.
And I don't understand why here in the United States, I mean, maybe it's moving in that direction. I don't know. But I think that people are getting more and more frustrated and more and more fed up. And, you know, I joke that, you know, if, if they keep rigging these elections and putting these, you know, oligarchs in place and austerity for everyone except them, socialism for the rich and, you know, rugged individualism or austerity for the, everyone else, that pretty soon, I, you know, I think history shows us that, you know, the pitchforks and the guillotines are going to come out soon. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a violent person. But I think that, you know, people can only be pushed down so much and then they revolt in, in whatever method that may be. And, and, and I don't know, it's, it's, getting to real, it's getting really crazy. And so the other, oh, so the other thing that's going on that I'll ramble on for a second about is the coronavirus outbreak, right? So here we have this worldwide pandemic um, you know, we have people on the one side, mostly on the right, but there's some people on the left who are saying that it's a hoax or it's being exaggerated. It's like, no, you motherfuckers, this is like the 1918 Spanish influenza that killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions, I don't know the number, but millions of people worldwide. This is not a fucking joke. You know? Yes, the mortality rate is somewhere between 2 and 5%. But if 80% of the fucking world population of, you know, 7.x billion dollars get it, you can do the fucking math. It's tens of millions of people dying. You know, and then, so then they'll come back and they'll say, oh, but, you know, just from the cold, colds or influenza, you know, we have 10,000 deaths a year. Okay, ten, that's bad. Right? If we had universal health care, we probably wouldn't have that many deaths. But 10,000 deaths is not the same as 40 million deaths. Hello? Hello? Are you listening? And so at the same time that we're having this Democratic primary with Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden and with Medicare for All... Um, and family, you know, paid sick leave and family leave and um, maternal paternity leave being discussed as policies by Bernie and his campaign, here we've got the coronavirus. And so now we've got the government <coughs> in the U.S. through the CDC and through Mike fucking Pence, asshole, who doesn't even believe in science and who think that smoking doesn't kill and, you know... Uh, he's a fucking idiot um, controlling the, the narrative on the coronavirus task force. But, you know, the, the CDC is telling people, Americans, to stay home. If, you, if you're sick and you even think you might have coronavirus, you know, sore throat, uh, stuffy nose, cough, um, especially a fever of over... I don't know, 100 or 101, stay home and self-isolate for 14 days. Okay, do you really think that most Americans who are working low-wage jobs, who may even have more than one low-wage low job, so they might be working at Burger King, Taco Bell, and Walmart, 
right? And making no more than $8 an hour at each one. They're, they may not even be getting insurance benefits. Um, you know, they may be on Medicaid and may get a little bit of um, food stamp assistance, but certainly they're struggling. And then, you know, they don't get paid time off. People that are working minimum wage or low wage jobs don't get paid vacation or paid sick time for the most part. You know, the only people that really have that are people that are in unionized blue collar jobs or who are in white collar professional jobs. And even then it's minimal. You know, I worked in um, Silicon Valley as a white collar uh, professional and, you know, um, was still even, you know, even when I got up to management level, right, was only given three weeks of paid vacation per year and I couldn't take it all at the same time. I had to take a day here, two days there, you know, and then I only had, um, I can't remember the, the number of sick days per year, but it was trivial, you know, it was like five, um, you know, so, and, you know, and that, and that was me being in a quote unquote privileged position, you know, being in an upper middle class, white collar, Silicon Valley engineering job, you know what I mean? And, and so you, you can't tell Burger King workers who are making seven twenty-five an hour or eight bucks an hour, you know, who can barely afford to pay their rent or car insurance or, you know, pay for life to go sit home for two weeks. So first of all, they wouldn't be able to pay their rent. They'd have no money for food. They, they, um, you know, they'd probably lose their jobs, right? Because Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, Taco Bell, whoever would probably just fire them, you know, because there's no labor protections, right? Nobody's unionized. I think only 7% of the U.S. workforce is unionized. Um, and so, you know, and then, so uh, people not having health care, right? So here we go. So we're talking about Medicare for all and universal health care. And then these fuckers like Joe Biden, you know, has the nerve to say, oh, no, universal health care is too expensive. We can't do that. Well, what's going to happen when we have, you know, anywhere from 40 to 80 percent of the American population that could become um, infected with the coronavirus and they're not self-isolating and they're going to work? And, you know, they're infecting other people and people who don't have, you know, people who can't get medical care, right? So people who don't have medical insurance, which is, I don't know how many, I can't remember the numbers from Bernie, but it's millions of people. I think it's eight, is it 87 million people in the U.S. are uninsured or underinsured? And even, you know, even for the ones that do have insurance, they're afraid to go to the doctor or the hospital because they can't afford the five, eight, ten, twelve thousand $12,000 deductible or even the co-pays. So when people don't go to the doctor, they don't get the necessary medical attention or advice, and it just spirals. 
they get sicker and sicker and they could die, right? And even if they do get better, they don't understand, you know, instructions and they're going out and they're infecting other people who could get sick and die who don't have insurance. I mean, it's, it's an exponential problem. It's, it's exponential math. And I don't understand how even moderate or conservatives, moderates or conservatives at this point during a pandemic could actually be sitting here during the pandemic and stating that they're against paid sick leave, that they're against, um, uh, you know, universal health care um, coverage. It, it's, it just seems um, sadistic. Um, and it, the, you know, I think even some of the media pundits are starting to go, hmm, this doesn't sound right. So what, we're all going to die? Um, so I don't know. This, the system is really fucked up. I know I've been rambling a lot in this podcast, but you know, with everything going on, right, there's so many different things going on, but they're, it's, they're all kind of intersectionally related, right? Coronavirus pandemic is related to the fucked up, idiot, corrupt Trump administration. And then it's also connected to paid sick leave, Medicare for all, core. 